Attention all personnel. Incoming podcast. This is MASH Matters. From deep inside quarantine land, it's Ryan Patrick alongside Mr. Jeff Maxwell, and this is MASH Matters. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Ryan, 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 Ryan. Do you have, 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 have any, any, any toilet, 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 paper, 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 hundred dollars a roll, 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 roll. Oh, if you can't laugh at it, you'll just go crazy, right? Indeed. Yes. You definitely will go crazy. Yeah. Yeah. What a thing, huh? Boy, oh boy. This is deep doo-doo, I think, for a while. But Speaking of toilet paper, yeah. yeah. I know. (laughs) Fortunately, you know, we've always been about social distancing on this uh, podcast because you're in California and I'm in Illinois. So uh, exactly, (laughs) we've never had any concern about uh, having to put this podcast on hold because we're never in the same room. Mm -hmm. We're aware. We're always at least six feet away. Yeah, <laughs> at least. <laughs> at least. <laughs> but, but it's been interesting, you know. Um, there's this thing going around on the interwebs. This gentleman, and I, I don't know him. His name is Frank. I'm going to do a blanket apology because there's pro- we're going to have a couple of names today that I think I'm just going to destroy. So I want to do a blanket apology right now. <laughs> if I maul your name here, yeah, forgive me. I'm sorry. I'm a, I'm a moron when it comes to this stuff. But Frank. Vaccariello, Vaccariello, I guess, Vaccariello. I don't know. I'm sorry, Frank, but Frank put together this video that he entitled MASH and the Coronavirus, and it has spread like wildfire. Well, I guess I shouldn't say spread. Uh, it has gone viral. No, we can't say viral either. No, don't say that. It is uh, becoming very popular on social media. In fact, between my personal friends and listeners, I think at least 50 people have sent me this video in the past yeah. week saying, I don't know if you've seen this yet or not, but it's really great. And it is really great. We'll put it in the show notes. If you are one of the three people who still have not seen it yet, you can go to a mashmatterspodcast.com and look at the show notes for this episode and see this video. But basically, uh, Frank took some scenes from MASH episodes that really very closely uh, relate to us right now about washing hands and touching your face and, and things like that that were addressed in episodes of MASH. And he put them together into one handy little video. And you can see that there on our website. But it's, it's a cool little video. It really is, and it 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 really uh, speaks to what's going on right now, and what behavior should really be. uh, I mean, you should wash your hands, and you shouldn't, you know, sneeze on. I remember, just as an aside, I remember I was sitting in a uh, coffee shop having a little breakfast with somebody, Mm -hmm. and a fellow walked up, and uh, I was introduced to him, and he said, "Oh, hi, nice to meet you," and he sneezed, and it wasn't one of those just it's you. It was. Right into his hand, which was good. At least it wasn't in my oatmeal. It was right into his hand. But then he stuck that hand out to shake my hand. Oh. And that was a, a rough moment. I kind of went, oh, my, you know, I sprained my wrist. Uh, Bill, I can't really move it very good. Nice meeting you. <laughs> and, you know, what in your brain allows mm. you to sneeze your brains out in your right. hand and then right. think it's okay to shake somebody else's hand? I, I don't get it. I don't get it either. Yeah. I once saw a child. We were going through a line getting pizza and I saw him sneeze on the pizza. <laughs> oh. Oh. Needless to say, I did not enjoy any pizza that day. Well, that wraps up our discussion of mucus uh, for the day, I think. <laughs> Moving on. 
There was another great meme that you actually sent to me and a few other friends sent to me as well. Said, we need to change who is in charge of this crisis. Three phone calls. Radar could have had masks, gloves, ventilators, PPE, 12-year-old scotch, Rocky Road ice cream, and grape-flavored knee-high soda. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe we can get him out of retirement, see what he can do. So part one was great. We had a lot of great feedback. And before we jump into part two, we just want to read a few of the listener comments from part one. Again, I'm probably going to destroy this name. Andy Cuneo? Cuneo? Andy Cuneo? I'm sorry, Andy. You know who you are. He said, holy mackerel, what a great interview. Thank you both. My mother introduced me to the show, and now I watch MASH every evening before I go to bed to get through this. Jeff, Igor was just awesome. Love the scene where he shoots Radar's bugle out of his hand. And, of course, that's a scene that we've talked about many times. And, Andy, we actually talk about that scene here in part two of our interview. Reveals the secrets behind that scene. That's right. By the way, my neighbor thought it was a great time right now to start mowing. So if you hear a mower in the background, that's why. (laughs) John Capiello said, a message to Jeff and Ryan, for the safety of everyone in the MASH community, could you please send out a public service announcement about the dangers of listening to your podcast while driving? I nearly drove off the road with laughter after your comment about Gary Berghoff painting houses. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, great. This is terrific. I I feel like we need to have a warning or something at the beginning of our podcast now, because, you know, a few episodes back, we had a lady say that she was getting funny looks in the gym because of our podcast. And now we have people driving off the road. I'm concerned now, Jeff. I really am. Well, it is concerning. It's something that we need to look into very, very seriously, because otherwise we could have people, you know, there could be lawsuits and everything going around. Right. Right. All right. Well, we'll do that. We'll we'll look into this, uh, these issues that, that we <laughs> brought up here. Hey, and Timothy Robinson, I got that one right, I bet. Timothy Robinson, he says, charming first part interview with Mr. Gary Berghoff. Well done, Jeff and Ryan. Also, I have a small three-bedroom house that could use some painting. Oh, boy. <laughs> I'm in big trouble. That was a fun joke. It was a joke. And I hope Gary's okay with it. It was just a joke. It really was. But he did a great job in the garage, too. Anyway, so. <laughs> Scott Parsons said, hey, listen to yesterday, and it was great. Amazing how timely it was, considering that you recorded before everything changed. Thankful for MASH, as always, to escape the real world for a bit, and thankful for you guys as well. Well, that's very nice. Thank you. Thank you. And Randy Coble said, very cool, unfortunately, too short. And I think that is a terrible thing to say about Gary Berghoff. Oh, oh, wait. <laughs> oh, oh, no, I'm sorry. Whoa. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, oh. Yowie. Part one was a little short, yes, but now... It's time for part two. Let's get into this, Jeff. Without any further ado, part two of Gary Burkhoff. Gary, what were your earliest memories there on the set in the early days when, you know, this is before MASH was a a cultural phenomenon. In fact, after the first season, you didn't even know if MASH was going to survive past the first season. What were your early memories of being on that set? Um, laughter. Mm Mm-hmm. It started immediately. We, we, we were all basically unknown actors who had struggled for a long time to get something stable and important to work on and creative to work on. And um, 
there was a feeling that this was very, very important. And that created a great deal of tension. And that tension began to manifest itself with laughter on the set. We would break the tension always with humor. And, you know, Alan has a, uh, Alan Alda had a great sense of humor. He wasn't the instigator of the humor, but his laughter would ring all over the set when he double over with laughter over something that one or more of us had said. And you could, it, 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 it was contagious all over the set. You know what I'm saying, Jeff? You remember? Uh, I remember it. I, you, you, I, it, it was contagious and infectious, and everybody went, "Oh!" And you just started laughing because it was so real and right from the, you know, from the gut. Exactly. Yeah. And it bonded us together. And what we were doing was very, very difficult at first. It was a minefield. We didn't have any idea where the mines were buried. We were constantly told by the network what we could or couldn't say. What we couldn't uh, couldn't do. Is that by the network? Is that what we're talking about? The network would say, you can't say that? It was the network, and more than often, the, the studio would capitulate with the network mm. because they didn't want to lose the contract. We would, you know, our ratings were that great to begin with. But we wanted it to be real and groundbreaking and artful, and you can't put those kind of restrictions on people who want that. Mm-hmm. We also wanted it to be disciplined, because there's no freedom without discipline. That was a rule that went all the way back to my acting classes mm-hmm. uh, back in the dark. You know, we learned that very early. And um, that manifests itself, for instance, in always representing the author's intent, no matter what you do. The author's intent is paramount. And it's also 20th Century Fox. If <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Warner Brothers, too. But I'm bummed, yes. <laughs> so, so the important thing was to free up the authors, to protect them and their and their artistry. And Gilbert, you know, was, was a genius at it. Yeah, he was. He would call up the censors at CBS and read to them the most outrageous rendition of a scene that he had just written to get clearance for it. <laughs> knowing that they would turn it down, hands down, <laughs> so that they would compromise with something less, which was what he wanted to begin with. Genius. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And he would get his really groundbreaking kind of uh, dialogue through in that manner. <laughs> and it wasn't just gags. It was meaning. Yeah. And we were, so, we were so lucky to have that meaning in the work that we were doing. Oh, anyway, uh, I, I hope I answered the question. I forgot what it was. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you did. You did. Are there any moments on the show or any episodes that really stand out to you or have a special place in your heart? All the ones with Igor in it, probably. <laughs> sure. Even even the ones even the ones that I occasionally see when I'm you know channel hopping that I don't even remember doing sometimes are very dear to my heart. Once I see them, I I, I have no recollection of having even done that scene. One of them recently was the one where the Korean baby was being born on the bus and that radar was just freaking out. Yes. That was an example of where ad-libbing was necessary. (laughs) And we never ad-libbed on mass without calling Larry Gelbart and asking if we could ad-lib. But in this particular case, it was necessary. And I went over the top with that living as, as the doctor was asking me to do certain things as the Korean mother was giving birth. And I, you know, totally freaked out because I, uh, my mind wasn't ready for this. <laughs> and I had a total nervous breakdown uh, uh, in front of the camera. Yeah, it's great. 
It's great. Very similar to what actually happened when my first child was born, but I'm not going to go into that. <laughs> well, speaking of specific episodes, I would be lax in my duty doing this if I didn't bring up Officer of the Day, where I almost shot you in the head with a cannon. <laughs> I've been asked about this for years. Mm-hmm. I've asked about the mechanics of it and exactly what happened. And some people, did you really shoot him with something? Were you really doing that? <laughs> uh, was there a bullet in there? How did that work? And I don't remember exactly how it worked. I neither do I. Yeah. <laughs> I know that somehow my bugle was ripped from my hand by some device. Yeah. It probably was just uh, a piece of fishing line or something like that. Hmm. And then later they added a sound effect, uh, sound effect that sounded like, Fight! You know? Yeah. <laughs> and I was able to react to the shock of it uh, because it actually felt shocking when it was torn from my hand like that. But also, to treat my bugle like that was... I mean, that was sacrilegious. <laughs> my bugle was one of my, you know, I mean, it was before I got my Emmy, that was my trophy. <laughs> I love that bugle. Okay, so we've had questions come in about the bugle. Yeah. People ask, was that really you playing the bugle or were you just acting like you were playing the bugle? Are you kidding? How could it not be me playing the bugle? <laughs> Well, you know the magic of Hollywood. No, listen, listen. Just before those scenes were shot, I would ask somebody off camera, "What am I, what am I playing? <laughs> How does it go?" And they go, and I would actually try to imitate that with my totally amateur and undeveloped embouchure. <laughs> And it came out. <laughs> and that was the that was the fun of it. It was the fun of it. I mean this was a this was a mash compound. It was not a professional army. Right, right, right. Well, I knew you were a musician. You're an accomplished jazz drummer as well. I also sometimes know that actors, when they are told they have to act poorly, like an actor who has to act like a bad actor, that's sometimes harder than acting just in, in general. So I didn't know if you were an accomplished bugle player that had to play poorly or if you were just simply a poor bugle player. <laughs> I was exactly what I was depicting. I was uh, 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 gotcha. I was somebody who had to play the bugle who didn't know how. But I had to I had to do it because there was nobody else who would do it or could do it. True truth in the moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean it was like do you remember the episode called the gun? Uh-huh. Where this uh, the patient came in, uh, this officer with a fancy gun. Yes. And it was kept in the gun suppository, and I was responsible for keeping it safe for the colonel who brought it in while he was being treated. And then uh, Larry Linville came in and, and was handling it. And I did a twirl of the gun on my finger like a cowboy, you know. You know uh, yes. You remember that thing? You did it really well, yes. <laughs> I actually knew how to do that because the Westerns growing up were my thing, you know. I was <laughs> practicing that with my Fanner 50. <laughs> that's the name of a toy cap gun yeah. for about 10 years growing up, you know. <laughs> and then and then when I handed it to Major Burns and he tries it, he can't do it. <laughs> it was funny. Yes. But uh, 
Uh, now I forgot the question. What was the question? Oh. I bet you don't remember either. <laughs> I, I don't he doesn't know. know. It started with a bugle and <laughs> a cannon, cannon yeah. and ended here. I have no idea. At my age, that doesn't help, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, Fanner 50, I had about three of those. Weren't those great? You could, you know, fire it by whamming the hammer back real. Oh, I love that thing, the Fanner 50. Do you really have three of them? I, well, I wish I had them now. I had them when I was a kid, but I, I wish I still had a Fanner 50. You could not fire find one in any department store they were the shelves were always empty yeah they sold so fast sold out yeah they yeah. were i wish it, yeah it was the closest to the to the colt single action army than any cap gun had ever been designed to be yeah yeah and everybody wanted one because it you know the single action army was always shown in those early westerns yeah when the the scene with the bugle, I, I have to thank you because that scene kind of uh, uh, gained me a little of attention from various people. Good. Uh, I remember somebody asked me, "Gee, can you make a face?" And I said, "Well, how many and how long would you like them to last?" <laughs> and they said, "Okay, well, here's the scene. You got to do this, and here's the guy, and he's going to tell you to shoot the thing, and you got to shoot it, and then when it, something happens, if you can do something after that, okay." So we did it, and I shot you, and <laughs> shot the cannon. And then when you when you were mad and you started running at me and they grabbed you, I almost burst out laughing because it was so funny. The whole thing was so funny. But when you came at me, your face was just, you were enraged, <laughs> which you had a right to be. And But I was so apologetic in my heart and soul because I thought, I could have killed this guy. This is horrible. And it gave me a chance to do those faces, which... Somebody called and said, hey, those are good faces. Maybe you can hang around. It wasn't just your face. It was also the way you were holding your hands. Like, look, I, I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't. You I know, didn't. He, he, he made me. I, I didn't. <laughs> yeah. He made me. Fire the ceremonial salute. <laughs> and what a lot of people don't understand about acting is that it's reacting. Yeah. And you don't plan those things beforehand. You're you're actually no. reacting to what you're seeing. Absolutely. From your fellow actor and your environment on camera. Yeah. Larry Linville, when he said those things to me, he was just, he was such a good guy and such a good actor. You just, you couldn't not respond to him. It was just, it was impossible. He was so wonderful. He was my, uh, he was, he became one of my greatest friends. And uh, what people don't see about Larry because of the character he played was how bright he was and how well read he was and how you could talk to this man virtually about any subject, mm-hmm. he would be able to speak uh, authoritatively about any important subject because he had read about it. He had a, you know, he didn't just read a book. He read the whole library, yeah. uh, various subjects. This was a man who became fascinated with building an airplane. So he built one in his apartment in L.A. <laughs> in fa- oh, I swear, I swear, in, in sections. And uh, then he he took all the sections out to the desert, assembled them, and flew it oh. without a single lesson. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Just from what he had read. Wow. He was a fascinating guy. Yeah. And he was also a much more magnanimous man than you would imagine. He had a strong sense of, of humanity in his heart. I, I, I loved him dearly. Speaking about that, and I, I have to read this quote from Mike Farrell. You may have seen it, I don't know, but this is a quote from Mike Farrell. Gary Berghoff may well have been the best actor in the company. His focus, his ability to find those little gems of behavior that made everything absolutely true 
were a marvel to behold. That's that's pretty good. I had a good teacher. <laughs> and and there's more glory in a single sunset than in all the combined triumphs of man. Oh, yes. uh, I, thank, I thank you very much, and I thank Mike very much for the compliment. The work stands on its own. I just wish that people could recognize the blessing that the work was and that the blessing came from another source. It was a positive blessing to bring television viewers something that was creatively special and that also made some internationally social comment while entertaining millions of people. Yeah. And for its time, I think that that had a certain amount of importance, but not any one of us can claim that it was, you know, us alone who did that. It was not only a joint creative effort, but it was a joint creative effort that in a very real way was a creative miracle. Mm -hmm. Because there was no company that I've ever known of that was more creatively free than we were when we were around that round table, you know, uh, reading the script for the first time. That's where all of the messaging that you were talking about coming from your heart was coming through our hearts to each other. Mm-hmm. And Gilbert was, was a great reader of hearts. And I, you know, I don't want to leave Gene Reynolds out of the scenario because Gene Reynolds was responsible for hiring Larry Gilbert and the rest of us. Yeah. And he put all of that chemistry together. He did. That's the man who's most responsible for the success of the show, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Gene Reynolds. Yeah, he captained the ship beautifully. He was he was elegant doing it. He really was. This is what I admire greatly about him. There are many things I admire about Gene Reynolds. But he he didn't easily let go to the Hollywood playbook. He grew up as a as a child actor at MGM and and other studios where he learned from early Hollywood rules and regulations. So let's say on how to produce, how to direct, and so on. When Larry Gelbart came along and this creative group that he had assembled started to uh, do things that were unheard of, but do them artfully, Gene had to let go of a lot of that, and that was very uncomfortable for him, but he did it. Mm. You know, and he allowed it to be, and he created a, a creative environment that was generally very comfortable for the actors and the crew and the whole mass experience. Mm-hmm. And I, I love him. I love him for it. I'll never forget him. Was it? I don't want to get into an area that may or may not be difficult. I don't know. This is a fun show where we have a good time. But well, if you don't want to get into it, then don't. Don't. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I'm, not, I'm just kidding. You could get into any uncomfortable any. area you want to. Well, my shorts are a little uncomfortable, so I might as well go that <laughs> way. Me too. When you're my age, your shorts are always uncomfortable. But go ahead. <laughs> Uh, well, it was difficult for you. It was difficult for me just as a, as a guy who worked there and knowing everybody, it was difficult for me to see the loss of a character and radar left. And that was very, uh, that was a very emotional thing. I think for everybody, obviously the audience and for people around you. Well, you just remember, okay, that was 1979, 1980, the early in 1980. Mm-hmm. And when did the show go off the air? 83. Mm-hmm. It was 83. Okay. So 80, three years later, we all left. Yeah, that's true. Three years earlier, uh, Larry Linville left. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Three years before that, McLean Stevenson and uh, Wayne Rogers left. Yeah. I wasn't leaving Nash. 
I was embracing the rest of my life. Aha, beautiful. When you're so identified with a character, and that's all there is, no matter where you go, in terms of how people respond to you, I realized that there was so much of my life that was going unlived. Mm. And uh, part of that was through the natural environment that I wasn't able to experience living in, Los, uh, living in any city. It wasn't just Los Angeles, but any city. I, I wanted to get back to nature, and it sounds so corny, but that's the way I was raised, uh, very close to the environment. And not only that, but I was raising a little girl who I, did, I couldn't, I didn't know how to raise effectively in the big city. Mm. Uh, I wanted her to experience the same closeness to nature, and being close to nature, i.e. nature to God, uh, I wanted her to sense God and everything around her. Mm-hmm. To me, that's a vital element in raising children. But that's just to me, mm-hmm. you know. I was being truer to myself than anything at that point, uh, I think. But I was embracing my life, not leaving Nash. I, it was the hardest thing in the world for me to do to say goodbye to you guys. I didn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't want to. And by the way, your, your listeners must understand that I didn't break a contract. My contract was up. I was coming out of a seven-year contract. I just decided not to renew it. Yeah. And I had that option. A lot of people would say, but it was such a wonderful experience. Why would you do a thing like that? Because the rest of my life was wonderful, too. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how long mass would go on, uh, yeah, but, but I couldn't be chained any longer to one place under that one scenario that uh, a studio contract change you to. Mm-hmm. I just had reached my, my point where I had to say, uh, I've done the best I can. I don't think I can do any better. So I'm going to get on with things. You know, I, uh, speaking of you, yeah, the daughter, I just switching gears for a minute. We, uh, my wife and I were in, uh, Venice, Italy, and we were sitting at the Greedy palace overlooking the uh, grand canal. There It was very very beautiful. It was around lunchtime. We decided to go there. Well, you know, let me let me ask you: Do they have shit on the shingle there? <laughs> <laughs> it sounds nicer in Italian, though. <laughs> <laughs> How do you say it in Italian? <laughs> A shit on the shingle. But anyway, uh, you know, there's a lot of people sitting around. It was very nice. It was gorgeous, and we're having lunch and. Uh, we started chatting with the people sitting next to us. And somehow, and I don't remember how it came up, but MASH came up. And one of the gentlemen said, well, uh, you know, it's funny you bring MASH up uh, because I uh, know Gary Berghoff's daughter. <laughs> and I went, what? What? <laughs> what? Boy, under the heading of this is a small world. Wow. And he said, yes, I was a friend of hers and uh, I used to work at her restaurant. And I said, wow, cool. I didn't know she had a restaurant, but that's great. Said, yeah, I worked as a waiter and we were friends and now I go off into land development or something. So I thought, my God, here I am sitting here <laughs> in Venice, Italy. You're sure it wasn't landfill development? <laughs> <laughs> it could have been. <laughs> but it was an amazing, you know, gee, this is a small world sitting here looking at the Grand Canal and all of a sudden we're talking about Gary Berghoff and MASH and that was a lot of fun. My daughter... And her husband are restaurateurs, 
and they own a, a very gourmet kind of a exclusive restaurant in Red Lodge, Montana, called the Prerogative Kitchen. It's a place where you can get gourmet food locally uh, in that very chic little Montana town uh, in that corner of Montana, uh, close to the uh, Wyoming border. Cool. And I only gave you a plug for my daughter's restaurant, but also a little geography. Yes. <laughs> geography lesson. Yeah. Wow. But I, I just found that to be fascinating sitting there. It, I never expected him to say that. <laughs> wow. Brought a, brought a little home to me while being in Venice, Italy. But you know, this is synergy. Yeah. You're sitting in Venice, Italy, next to a man who knows the daughter of the actor that you worked with on Mask. I mean, that is synergenic or whatever it's called. My first day in New York as a 19-year-old young man, I bumped into my drumming teacher on Broadway from Bristol, Connecticut. <laughs> Furthermore, uh, about two blocks more on Broadway, bumped into the cab driver who had driven me from Delavan, Wisconsin to the train station in Chicago <laughs> to go to New York. Three days earlier. Wow. Do you believe that? And I said, Red, <laughs> what the hell are you doing here? He said, well, you made it sound so exciting. I just kept driving after I dropped you off. <laughs> My wife doesn't even know I'm gone yet. God knows what you did to their marriage, for God's sake. Wow. <laughs> that is a true story. That's synergy. It was. I was so frightened of being there. I mean, it was overwhelming. Can you imagine a 19-year-old kid who had never been, well, when I was a little kid, my parents used to bring me to New York for Broadway plays. But other than that, I had never been in New York. And here I am alone. <laughs> I didn't even have an apartment yet. I'm walking down Broadway, fresh out of the train, you know, at Grand Central Station, which was mammoth enough as it was. And I bump into the people I had just known from Delavan, Wisconsin, and Bristol, Connecticut, my two, two hometowns that I came from. <laughs> wow. That's wild. <laughs> Isn't it? Are, are you, a, you are a, a very entrepreneurial fellow. But they didn't ask me about my daughter's restaurant. That was the point. Go ahead. You know, they... <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're very entrepreneurial. A person and you've in, you're an inventor. You're a very creative individual. Are you inventing anything lately? Have you come up with a, a really good one that we can share with everybody? No. No. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway. Okay. No problem. No, you know, when, when I retired, I retired almost 15 years ago. Mm. And when I retired, I don't know, something in my mind said, don't do anything after retirement that you did before retirement, mm. start a whole new life. That's what retirement, I think, is supposed to be for, to experience all of life that you can, yeah. apart from what you had been doing before and the regiment that went along with it. Yeah. And that's the only way I could relax in retirement, was to get rid of that regiment. Yeah. And that's why it was so hard for me to call you exactly at 3 o'clock in the afternoon today. <laughs> I'm not used to that much regiment. <laughs> well, speaking of retirement, I you've been very, very kind to uh, talk to us, and so perhaps it's time to let you go retire <laughs> some more, or, or to the bathroom, whichever comes first. Or to the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> you have any last uh, wonderful words you'd like to say to the folks that are listening who love you and love Mash? As a matter of fact, I do. I can no longer return requests from fans 
by mail for autographs. I can't do it anymore. And I am so grateful to them for writing me and the wonderful messages that they send. But I can't do it anymore. If I answer one, I have to answer a hundred. And I, it becomes totally unmanageable. I don't have a team working with me. I'm just an old retired man. Yeah. But I want them to know how much I appreciate their interest in the show and, um, you know, my involvement with the show. I mean that from my heart. So I apologize to them all. I just can't do it anymore. I hate to leave on a downer, but I, if that message gets out, uh, it may explain why they're not getting a response from me. I, uh, it's impossible. But I love them all. That's fair. Well, they love you so much because you, uh, as you said, you brought so much from your heart and soul and from perhaps a different, bigger place that they all resonated with. And so there's a there's so much emotion. And, you know, Ryan and I talk about this because Ryan was a guy that grew up with MASH and watched it as an audience. I did not. So I have a different emotional you know, reaction to it and different response to it. I was there and it was part of a, you know, career and and all the things that go along with that. And he has a different feeling to it. And and all the listeners are more on his side rather than kind of our side. But I know that Ryan was, you were certainly affected by MASH. I know that, Ryan. (laughs) Deeply, deeply. Yes. Listen, Ryan, when you're thinking about how wonderful MASH was all the time, Please remember that we had to eat Jeff's food. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. More as hell, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Hey, cream of weenie soup isn't that bad. <laughs> the, the aftermath of war was even worse. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Oh, well, Gary, I can't thank you enough. Uh, you've been delightful. We appreciate it. We love you dearly. Really been a pleasure, guys. Thank you very, very much. And God bless you both. Thank you to Gary Berghoff for coming on and talking to us, man. It was, that was I can't great. Help it. I can't help it. I have nothing else to do, Ryan. You have a job. You have work to do. I look, you have a family. I have nothing. Oh, man. The longer this whole quarantine goes on, the stranger and stranger these podcasts <laughs> may become. Oh, yes. That's for certain. <laughs> Uh, oh, but no, it was great. And uh, man, it was, as always, it was oh, so much fun too for me as a fan just to sit back and listen to you two sharing all of your memories from the set. I, I love that. Well, I loved it too. It's it's remarkable for me to have those experiences and to talk to Gary and everybody that we've talked to. And by the way, everybody that we might be talking to in the very near future hmm. about our relationships and about how MASH worked and what went on behind the scenes and all those kinds of things. But just to be able to have the conversations with everybody in this cast is just really a special moment for me. So I hope it's as special to everybody listening as it is to me. So thank you for listening. And thank you again, Gary, for doing that. We we loved it. Loved it. Absolutely. We did love it. And thank you for listening to MASH Matters. And yes, uh, Jeff kind of alluded to it there. Um, we do have some more big interviews on the way. So stay tuned. We'll be 
giving you a little more uh, details on that coming up uh, coming up very soon here on Mash Matters. In the meantime, we would love to hear from you. So you can hop on the old uh, computer there and go to Twitter or go to Facebook, or you can uh, email us uh, through our website, matchmatterspodcast.com. You can also call and leave a three-minute or less voicemail at 513-436-4077. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, we would appreciate you going on there and giving us a five-star review and uh, maybe write a little review as well. I think the last time we said we were closing in on 100, and we are now over 100 reviews on apple podcasts and wow. thank you to everybody who has left a review so far and we look forward to reading some of those coming up in future episodes that's going to be fun i love hearing about how wonderful we are <laughs> i mean that's <laughs> i do love that <clears throat> Thank you. Yes, by all means, please, if you haven't yet, please contact us and let us know how wonderful we are. (laughs) (laughs) And we say that with all humility. Absolutely. All right. Until next time, here's looking up your old address. 